And for the record, the boat was named after you. Listeners, welcome back to season one of Takes of Our Lives. You're listening to episode 27, which means, of course, we're talking about season one, episode 27, the season finale of The O.C. I'm Vince Kochi, and I'm joined this week for the second to last time this season by Steve Wilkes. Steve, how you doing? I'm good. I'm I'm really finding it hard to believe that we're about to go full Brody and uh, set sail, leaving The O.C. behind. I know. It is just as melancholy and bittersweet, but strangely uplifting as the finale itself. Steve, before we jump into our thoughts on, you know, maybe the most important episode of the season, definitely the last one, uh, what happened? What goes on in this episode? Yeah, so uh, it opens with Seth and Ryan. They're like hanging out outside of uh, Planned Parenthood, uh, waiting on Teresa. They're kind of discussing potential baby names for or names for Teresa's baby Thor um, is brought up very prescient Thor <laughs> yeah, yeah. predicting the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe boom from 20 years later um, Teresa kind of throughout the episode goes back and forth on whether or not she's going to keep the baby uh, ultimately deciding to have it with some guidance by Kirsten um, Ryan comes to the conclusion that he's going to he has to move back to Chino to help Teresa uh, it seems like nobody is happy with this this uh, this decision, least of all Seth, who lashes out in multiple different ways to multiple different people. Um, Caleb and Julie get married in one of the dopest settings I've ever seen, and the episode ends with a pretty powerful montage of our characters left pretty emotionally fragile or broken. Very, very well summarized. I think in rewatching the finale, I'm, I guess surprised is not the right word, but I was taken by just how uh, powerful the final series of scenes were. The last um, montage is pretty great. Absolutely. It's, it's very good. Um, I guess to kick things off, did you like the finale? Well, I, I do. I, it's very memorable. I definitely remembered the, the final montage scene. Um, I didn't really care for the first half of it. It's really, it's pretty melodramatic and just melancholy. And, uh, I don't know, it's just not that fun. Uh, you know, abortion is never a fun topic, but yeah, that it just wasn't kind of what I was looking for in the finale of the OC, but that's what we got. It kind of makes sense, uh, dramatically for where the episode ends. I like where it ends off. Um, and so the way we got there wasn't a barrel of laughs, but I thought it was well plotted and well executed, I guess. What about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly on the same, uh, wavelength. I thought, uh, definitely the first two thirds of the episode kind of tough to find its footing. The way that the the show did uh, kind of a lot of will she or won't sheing, kept the characters in the show off balance, but it also kept the viewing experience off balance a little bit. Um, I, I didn't really even feel like we built a lot of momentum. There's the Seth selling his boat 
then that falls through. There are various plans made and forgotten over the course of the same episode. There's a nice sort of ephemeral quality to that that speaks of like teen summers, but um, more or less, I thought it just it didn't have a lot of velocity going into the finale, the end of the finale, I guess I should say. But um, like we already mentioned, it it does absolve itself of a lot of sins with the very powerful third act centered around first the Cooper nickel wedding and then the um, the many farewells that follow. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I don't know what, but before we kind of jump into the segments, what was your main rewatch reaction? I think I've got, I've got two main ones. I forgot about the, I I forgot about how Teresa arrives upon her decision. I always remembered it as, you know, she is religious and her mother is religious and there was never a question mm-hmm. whether they were going to keep the child. I so I forgot that wrinkle. Then I also it, it parlayed into the fact that I forgot about the very powerful, though um, I'm not politically aligned nor pragmatically aligned with what happens uh, with Kirsten and Teresa. Uh, it is a very well acted and meaningful scene. Um, so that part caught me off guard in a good and a bad way. Uh, and and whether. However you feel about it, I think you can agree that it was pretty good TV. But the other thing that caught me off guard was just, um, you know, how very out of character, but emotionally mature, both Marissa and Ryan are. They sort of have to be the adults in the finale, and and they, they kind of do be the adults, uh, to put it less eloquently than someone who would write the show would actually uh, put it. But I, I kind of liked both of their performances. Um Though I think undersold at times, one thing that stuck with stuck with me and does stick with me is um, how even keeled they are, despite what is a really emotionally traumatic um, series of events. In contrast, perhaps to how Seth reacts. Yeah, s- s- seriously, that that's what I wanted to get at. Yeah, Seth, for all like the emotional maturity that Marissa shows, Seth is like the other side of that spectrum. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't think that much about Marissa's, uh, performance or I don't know what she had to do in this episode. There is at the beginning, uh, it just, it didn't totally track for me. Like at the very beginning, there's that scene where they're at school and, uh, Ryan tells Marissa that, you know, she's going to keep the baby. And, but that conversation kind of ends with him being like, you know, I want this to, I want to make this work between the two of us. And then by the end of the episode, he's totally changed his mind and he's going back to Chino. And all the while, she she never like questions his decisions or questions his, you know, what he initially had told her. Um, whereas Seth is just like downright immature about the whole thing, which I don't really have an issue with because I think, I don't know, we'll get to it in uh, the O scene, but I've, I've kind of like railed against, uh, Brody's petulance in the past but I don't know in this episode it didn't I didn't really have as big an issue with it I was just yeah the, my my big reaction to the whole episode was just more emotional than I was expecting the I I just like you for kind of totally forgotten about the Kirsten revelation that she had had an abortion you know in her past um, and that her her moments with Teresa were some of the best of the of all the emotional stuff that happens in the episode some of the best I thought um Ryan like telling the gang on the beach when they like leave when they ditch the uh, engagement party 
or the whatever it is, the groom's dinner, whatever that uh, dinner at the Cohen's house was. Um, and then I don't know, Seth lashing out at Marissa in the diner. That was I was that was kind of unexpected as well. I didn't remember that happening. But. Dude, I, I want to talk about that for just a second, unless it's uh, no, unless no. it's going to be near and dear to you later. Um, that was an unexpectedly powerful and kind of cool scene. I mean, Seth wasn't being cool; he's being extremely irrational. Um, but you don't often get a show that uh, it, the OC doesn't really reference past events that canonically. But to have Oliver brought up suddenly, yeah, like this quick resurfacing of a of a major arc uh was pretty cool made the made the world feel really interconnected to me in that moment yeah definitely and she has a good comeback for him too you know like it's not she kind of questions his you know what he likes about having ryan around and you know like he yeah you just got out of fights and helped you meet girls that's you know that was a good good comeback yeah really yeah (laughs) he didn't have much to say to that but yeah, I don't know, dude. The Seth and Ryan goodbye is brutal. That also will come up a little bit later. But um, yeah, yeah, just just overall very emotional episode. Not surprising, I guess. But that was just kind of what I took uh, from from a more macro sense. Agree. I I have like a few micro issues to bring up. I'll just I'll keep this one very brief. I you know it was it was twenty years ago, but the Kirsten abortion plot element. While I have a lot of good things to say about the acting in it, it's like they they were flirting with like a really hard hitting thing because Teresa was she was like calling Kirsten out ever so slightly, but mostly like looking up to her being like, it's easy for you to say this sort of thing because, you know, your life is so good. Mm -hmm. And then but Kirsten sort of like undercuts that. But it also worked out exactly as Teresa's hoping her abortion would work out because it allowed her to like continue to live the life she was living and go to college and become successful. And now she's like sort of soft advising Teresa, who's in a very vulnerable position, not to do the thing that she did, which worked out great. It's like um it it like was ever so slightly just misaligned and felt a little icky to me. So I did want to call it out, but um, pretty, pretty like minor since it, it was a nice plot development. It just, it, I had a personal gripe with it a little bit. Okay. The, the, the abortion thing in general is kind of, I, that it was, that was like the, of all of like the, the drama that's happened in this season, that's like the, the topic that I just like did not want to like have to do any type of mental gymnastics to try to figure out. And, and still enjoy, you know, have enjoy myself watching the show. Um, I'm not to say that they shouldn't have done it or anything like that. Uh, that was, it was just like that was I didn't maybe devote as much brain power to that as I have to other things. Uh, mostly just because like, yeah, it's just such like a sticky issue. Um, I mean, like two episodes ago, we've got the Teresa is the, an abuse victim. I mean, right. she she can't catch a break with these writers. Not at all. Do you have a? I want to ask you. Do you have an issue with them making Teresa look like absolutely destitute by being a coffee shop employee? I found that a that what I what I found a little annoying. I've got some takedowns to break down <laughs> when it comes to that. I, I wasn't. A, I wasn't. I was not very pleased with their treatment of Teresa's employment status. Has been careless to give it its best possible grade 
and uh, and schizophrenic to give it its worst possible grade. But yeah, I, I think that is that kind of sums up any of the macro points that I'm looking for. I just want to, you know, we'll say this several times throughout the episode, but um, pretty close to what I would say befitting of the season one finale. There's a couple moments that I'm sure we will touch on that are particularly poignant, but uh, I, it just left me feeling a little sad. Yeah. A little blue. Oh, definitely. I've got a couple minor things I just want to uh, talk about before we move on to the segments. Um, I wanted to do another edition of my micro segment, Couples Doing Coupley Stuff, which is, <laughs> for those of you who can't remember, it's uh, lines or moments that are insufferable. For me, this was a big one. It's oh. it might be a recency bias, but um Brody's it might be the worst the worst of the season. Brody's pudding riff made me want to gouge my eyes out. Yo, that was terrible. I <laughs> that was... I said just stop trying to make pudding happen in my notes here. <laughs> uh, it it was like really ill-conceived. That's very 2004 appropriate. I'm pretty sure that was the year Mean Girls came out. <laughs> Uh, oh, I wouldn't question your movie oh, three, knowledge. Oh, 03 or oh, 04, somewhere in that range. But um, yeah, stop trying to make pudding happen. Good good one. That's, that sucked <laughs> really bad. Uh, do you think that was written or libbed? That is, oh, dude, I would bet it all that that was uh, improv. Because he, if yeah. you watch it, if you watch it closely, even as Teresa comes in, he's still doing it. He's holding, like, pudding in his hand and, like, in, like, uh, in the background, like, offering her pudding and still saying it. That that's a hundred percent Brody original. A couple more things. Uh, that scene where Caleb walks Julie to the house when she's blindfolded. First of all, that house is insane. But I was it's just a little. A, she's right. It's a castle. Seriously, I was a little underwhelmed by her reaction, though. Honestly, you know, she like does like a little scream and like she's excited, and then it, you know, it's it's like two seconds. She says, "I want to live here forever," and they just cut it off. I don't know. A little more. I could have taken a, getting a little more from Julie in that that scene. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, and and since I don't know that, we'll have an opportunity to. Uh, should we talk about a little bit of like a big B plot cliffhanger? Caleb Nichols is going out of business. He's bankrupt. Dude, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, so it turns out that Caleb is not so rich and powerful after all. Um, he's made some poor investments, and he's got debts in every area of the business other than the residential real estate where Kirsten is in charge. Uh, I don't know. Good, good cliffhanger, I guess. Um, or maybe like planting seeds for future drama, but it felt a little unnecessary for this episode. Uh, and totally kind of cut. Honestly, one thing we'll, we'll get into and take down breakdown, but give us more wedding scenes by God. I'm outraged. So you know I'm a big wedding fan. Oh man, yeah, um, we're, we'll we'll definitely talk more about that. But um, yeah, I don't know that that. What was your take on that scene with uh, Caleb and Sandy in the office there? I I thought it was cool. It was pretty good. Caleb giving us like serious like Defcom, just the facts in his cool, understated way was great. When he said that residential real estate's our only profitable division it was like damn damn that's i mean it's got that little layer of intrigue that he always brings to his plots that i really like uh him saying it with a black eye also had like a little bit of humor and mystique to it yeah continuity error there for me though he because if you from the last episode jimmy punches him in the mouth and when he's on the ground he's got like 
it's not like blood, but you can click, you can tell where he's been hit, and it's like on the side of the mouth. But oh, no, really? Yeah. Continuity sleuth Steve yeah. catches another one. Showrunners, <laughs> you're not getting anything amends. by me, Schwartz. Um, I thought it it deserved a little more space and time. It could have been a whole episode, but instead, it's it's sort of tucked into this finale. So I I don't know. Totally. I I think I mean it's it's definitely gonna come up in future seasons. So I think for, yeah, for, if you're being charitable, it's like you get, you get a little hint of it here and then it's going to get much more developed. I don't know. I thought if they were going to do it. I did like that. They, it kind of, they made it made somewhat a little bit of sense of like how the whole thing transpired with that dude in Vegas, the guy who wanted to buy it. And he's like, it doesn't mean as much to anyone else. Cause he owns the rest of the property on the coastline and all that. Like at least they kind of like did some lip service to making that whole plot make sense. And yeah, I agree. Though he does go full Jimmy Cooper and buy a mansion like 10 minutes before <laughs> he runs out of money. I don't know if I can uh, abide by that as a financial advi- investment. No. But um, other other t- kind of weird timeline continuity error there, because he says in that scene where uh, he shows Julie the house, I built it for you. So like, is he implying you built that thing in the last like couple of weeks uh, from, you know, when they got back together? I don't know that. But that's not Uncle that's not Sean a huge... doesn't know enough black market contractors in the world to get that done. No, never. It's the size of a city block. But yeah, so I don't know. Any, I'm trying to think if there's any other uh, minor things that I want to touch on. But, oh, a lot of tongue in that kiss between Sandy and Kirsten in that opening <laughs> scene. Yeah, that was pretty graphic, dude. They get after it. I think there's some real on-screen chemistry between Rowan and Gallagher. I I can't blame either one of them, honestly. Makes total sense to me. Echoes my sentiments. Um, Steve, as a sort of amuse-bouche before we go into the meat and potatoes of the O scene and talk about the end to a extreme cultural phenomenon, let's have our moment to take a little of the shine off it, take it down and break it down first. Yeah, let's do it. The Takedown Breakdown, a fine segment that has gotten us through many, (laughs) many episodes of this cast, uh, and plenty to talk about here again. Steve, what are some of the things you wanted to take a swing at? Okay, I don't have a a ton of digs on this episode. I've got two things that I want to break down. So if you've got some some, uh, takedowns you want to start us off with, I'll let you I want a quick takedown slash give Teresa Kudos. From being promoted to a caterer who was running a job for the bakery to the bakery's in-house cash registered repair woman. Just in like just a few weeks. I can't I can't understand what is happening <laughs> with, with her employment status and her No. Uh, any of it. Uh, how old she's supposed to be? Is she supposed to be in high school still? Is she sixteen thirty six? You can't tell. You don't know. I, I don't know. So the, there's the there's the issue. What's your bigger issue here? Is it the, the, the I feel like I'm saying continuity a lot, but is it the weird continuity stuff with the jobs or is it the fact that they're like, I, I don't like the fact, because speaking as a former uh, restaurant employee, I don't like when society at large kind of like looks at that job as like you're barely above the poverty line, which in some cases you are. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to like say that it's more than what it is, but 
I don't know. She's it's not like she's the first person on earth to, you know, make a living wage working at as a, you know, a server or whatever caterer coffee shop employee. That's that's my issue. I think that's a very fair issue to have with it. It's not my issue. My issue is with the absolute cavalier attitude with which the people who write and produce the show have treated her employment status. It is an ever-shifting chameleon. It's really the Luke. It's the it's Luke's <laughs> personality as like a job. It's, I don't know, like job plot mechanics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's clearly not a caterer anymore. But this was—it's never addressed. It's just it's <laughs> yeah, not she's she's like the one you go to when you're having register issues. <laughs> exactly. I don't she's not. A, yeah, she's not like a temp. Like, yeah, that's how she she joined. She went back to the OC because she was picking up some. Like some odd shifts or whatever at some bakery, and all of a sudden she's the woman in charge. But yet she's only making eleven dollars a day in tips. It positively infuriated me. So stupid. I've got another breakdown. This is more of a mechanics issue. The weird summer saying we're never having sex again oh. three times, and that never it it like having zero bearing on the plot on anything. Besides, it's like. I, I get what they're going for because she was like, uh, "I'm never having a baby. I don't want to get pregnant." Okay, yeah. Well, oh, I dude, the good. I I did not. That didn't track for me. I was under the impression she's still mad at Seth, and and so you know she's like, "We're taking a break from sex, just so you know, because I'm not over this issue that happened in Vegas." But I I mean it's it's oh. up to interpretation, I guess. It is, yeah. I guess that's not what I got from it, but I think that exactly underpins my point. Why why is it in this episode? No it, idea. They Seth never even really acknowledges it. He has like these half quips that come afterwards being like, yeah, I'm not protesting. I get it. Okay. And then she just keeps saying it. And then the plot never addresses it. It never comes to meet this setup. It just flies off into thin air. What would you think of Summer in general on this episode? Bad. Under, yeah. With, with like a few medium moments. Mm-hmm. Pretty much my take. Uh, underutilized a little bit. She is on the periphery of a lot of important scenes, but she doesn't really get a moment. Her moment is like at the end where she goes up to Seth at the wedding, but it doesn't really go well for her. He She gets paid off with that line about the boat that you did in our cold open. Uh, but even that, just it, it just it's not really... It doesn't have the same gravity as a lot of the other scenes that are going on around it, so it kind of gets lost. Yeah, totally. I, I was thinking, just as you were talking, I, one way they could have really like dropped a hammer to end the episode and end thus the season is her like picking up that note that's in his bedroom that you know he leaves like the mom, dad, and summer, and like if her discovering that note and like doing some good, you know, like non non uh, with no without any lines, but some good face acting about like as she's reading it that would have been a good way to uh hammer it home i don't know what do you think about the final the final shot of him sailing away uh i thought it was powerful cool beautiful um you know seth has this tempestuous kind of childlike reaction to the news it's important to remember he's still a teenager in a in a show that is desperately trying to get us to think of the main characters as washed up alcoholics soon to be fathers and <laughs> hustle and bustle three job holding down moms um 
it's nice to see that Seth is acting like a kid, kind of. Mm-hmm. He's doing like an impulsive, mad teenager thing. What are there any other takedowns you, you have before we break some of this other shit down? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do like a, a, a like, yikes, can we get a little decorum takedown? But mm. also I liked it when um, Haley, Jimmy, and Julie just fucking slice at each other. Oh, hell take yeah. Take the knives out. We get some nasty lines. Haley gets called a coke whore. Yikes. I don't even <laughs> like saying it. I don't even like saying it back. It's just mean. And then Jimmy, in front of their child, suplexes Julie and says, looks like someone forgot about the 80s. Holy Toledo. Right yeah. in front of Marissa. Yeah. Rough. Definitely rough. <laughs> so you, you're not taking down that scene. You're just saying those were good takedowns. I'm the- taking it down a little bit. I'm just like, guys, chill. <laughs> mm, okay. But I, I really enjoyed it because it was so nasty. Uh, yeah, I I mean, this isn't really a takedown, but I just wanted to say RIP to Marissa's Paris-themed bedroom that she just got like within like a week's <laughs> period of showtime. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. We knew that was coming, though. We called that out in that episode. Um, all right. Let me, let me do my thing here. Please, There's, a few breakdowns. I want to talk about two things. I'm going to save the wedding for last because that'll be fun to talk about. But one, okay, so we're, we're reintroduced to Summer Breeze, Seth's boat, and there's a scene where Ryan and him go out there and they're kind of all excited. The, the Teresa's made the decision to not have the baby. Uh, Ryan's obviously, he has you know very mixed emotions about that. Uh, part, one of them is relief, though, that he's not going to have to his life isn't going to be altered in the way that he thought it might be. Uh, so they're talking about sailing and he brings up the, uh, the earlier mentioned sailing trip to Tahiti says he could have made it in 42 days on that tiny boat. Now is this, am I missing something here? Is there like a larger vessel that he's planning on taking on this trip? You know, they, they mentioned it once before. Now they've mentioned it again. This is like, you know, this was at one point, their, their maps are being exchanged. Like, the, this is like not something that's like was tossed off. Like, this is, they're given some, this some thought. Am I to believe that he's going to actually make it 40 days on that tiny ass boat? In the open sea. I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, please, any listeners who are sailors, avid seamen or sea women who might be able to shed some light, I know that prodigies and very prepared individuals take catamarans which are very similar to the boat that he's using across the atlantic but it's always semi-newsworthy when they make it yeah like is this this a guinness world record thing for that size of a boat like first of all where do you sleep how cold does it get how do you avoid just like madness like <laughs> on the open <laughs> sea, like that's. A, do you think Seth has like the mental acuity to actually do that? Be solitary for forty days? I don't think so. And especially where you could like die at any moment. Um, bathroom stuff. I don't know. What what else? What am I missing here? No, you are nailing a lot of important aspects. Um, yeah, I here's what I have to imagine, and this is the sort of breakthrough journalism that everyone signs up for. Uh, cause I have not checked, fact checked this at all. I imagine it is like, since he's, they, they didn't do a scene where he's like packing. I imagine it's more of a situation where you hop from port to port 
and have you like, looked at a map of the pacific though the tahiti is like it's like an 18 hour flight like i don't there's not maybe there's tiny <laughs> islands along the way but <laughs> no i have no idea i'm trying to i i don't i don't get it it just seems so unlikely that they would they would pick tahiti and say it 10 times this season and not have like some frame of reference for it being plausible so yeah that that thank you that well said you you like that you encapsulated exactly what i'm feeling about this whole thing uh because it just seems like like serious serious question would this be like the most dangerous thing anyone's ever attempted (laughs) (laughs) in the history of the world (laughs) no no it can't be right surely not i'm not sure i don't know what (laughs) <laughs> like walking walking 40 days somewhere would be pretty dangerous but you're like on the open ocean by yourself on that size of a boat i don't know so that that's that's all that was one thing i want to break down and even still if we're so he spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't seen season two he ends up uh in portland so i don't feel like that's he too took much a wrong a, turn that's not too much of a spoiler uh i hope for anyone who hasn't seen uh season two do you care to guess how long it takes to drive from Los Angeles to Portland? Ooh, I think I could probably put a pretty good number on this. I'm going to say 12 hours. You're close. It's about, it's it's close to 15 hours. Oh, wow. Okay. That is a, that's a long, it's, it's not a jaunt. It's yeah, definitely no, in stroll territory. For sure. You're, you're, you're crossing, well, I guess you're just, it's just two states, but it's close to Washington. One's a very long state. Yeah. Um. So, like, I don't know how long we're maybe we're to believe that he's sailing to Portland would take four days, maybe. I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure what like a, a guess would be on that. But, um, even still, like, I think four days on that tiny boat would be, and like that, maybe you like can like see, you can, you can stay within the sight of shore the entire time. But when they, sh- that final shot, they're like doing like a 360 basically around that boat. And I don't see land anywhere. So, just got a lot of a lot of sailing questions uh, for Brody, <laughs> but um, I think that's enough of that. What let's let's chat about the wedding. Yes, please. I just just general. I want your general take overall because I know listener uh, for for those of you who don't know Vince, this man loves weddings. Uh, there's a few things that he loves more. He officiated. He officiated very graciously and uh, excellently officiated my wedding to my wife and I, Sarah, in the summer of 2017. Did an excellent job. Uh, huh. Thank you. But Steve. yeah, and my wedding aside, weddings are one of your favorite things. Am I incorrect in saying that? Not even close. It's it's exactly true. Um, I do love weddings. I have to say, a taking a careful eye to the Cooper Nickel wedding. Um, I think they overspent in some conspicuous places and then skimped in others. It it was gorgeous, first of all. The setting was unreal. That the chapel, dance the, floor. the crystal chapel or whatever she calls it in the previous episode, it, it like, I would say exceeded my expectations. It was, it literally took my breath, stole it. <laughs> the dance floor out in a grove overlooking a bluff was like, come on holy moly excellent stuff um and a little look ahead to our next segment or one of our next segments we have uh gem live singing a paul mccartney (laughs) tune while everyone's doing the first dance it was very it was extremely bespoke 
Um, My question is, how'd they get Jem? How'd they book her? <laughs> on short notice, no less. <laughs> Uh, one of the, one of my wife and I's favorite things is watching The Bachelor, and uh, one of the, like the tropes of The Bachelor is they always do this thing where they they um, have like a usually uh, like nine times out of ten it's a country music singer, but they'll have like a performance like a uh, per, like a solo performance with they'll go on like a date and then it'll end with them dancing like for just just the two of them to like a, a live performance, and it's always like a someone you've never no one has ever heard of, but then when they're doing like the one on one interview to the camera they talk about how it's incredible to have so-and-so perform like they know like they're huge fans it's real it's always really funny but i kind of felt that way about jim although she's singing a, a very like well-known song it that's really good i could just imagine like oh my god can't believe they got paul flaggerty yeah <laughs> i don't know how they what kind of strings they had to pull um i think it was sparsely attended mm. that was you know it I expected intimate. it to be kind. Yeah, it was intimate. It had just the three bridesmaids and groomsmen, all family, and it um, it had maybe forty guests. For taking into account the size of the chapel and then the bird's eye of the reception, uh, I was pleasantly surprised that there were no brawls at the reception. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was not a, a pleasant given. surprise. No one got tossed through one of the the windows of the crystal <laughs> chapel. <laughs> Yeah, the whole thing didn't come crashing to the ground in a blazing inferno. I thought it was tasteful. Uh, they they resisted the urge to be tacky, which was, you know, given Caleb's wealth and Julie's tastes, um, definitely possible. No seeker. I didn't get a good look at any of the ancillaries, the drinks, the food. Um, but I'm if I had to imagine, I believe it was. Uh, Israeli couscous <laughs> they were being served so you're you're missing uh, a huge I, I problem it. though the so here's my big thing the wedding I, I need to see this wedding program because there is more than one time it's mentioned that the th- that the thing ends at 6 p.m and they do the because he, he's like yeah Teresa's gonna pick me up at six so basically they're back at the house the same day the day of the wedding when Teresa comes to pick him up yeah what the hell I, it's <laughs> I don't think I think I would enjoy it. It strikes me much more as like a it's it's kind of a wedding in the old high culture esteem where it's like it's not about the reception. It's okay. actually about the ceremony. And there's like a little bit of tasteful drinking or a little <laughs> tasteful drinking. It doesn't it's not clear that that's happening. Um, a little bit of tasteful dancing and then a very classy farewell it's not an into the night affair Mm. perhaps has something to do with caleb's advanced age but um it it, i was gonna say it didn't look particularly fun to attend it looked kind of attractive to attend Uh uh-huh interesting i thought you were gonna have a big issue with the uh the time the scheduling that's interesting um what did you think about the lack of speeches of on-screen speeches anyway we're d- definitely opposite of a uh, Rachel getting married vibes here. <laughs> I I I think it. Um, you brought up this point earlier. We don't get enough wedding. It should have been a bottle episode about the wedding and then mm. the farewells. Instead, we get we go chasing around peers and Planned Parenthood visits and you know great organization. But I, we don't need like three different conversations about it and mm. them. Uh, I, 
I would I was hoping and expecting a little bit of a funner episode where the wedding was the backdrop to a lot of drama. Just was not the case. Uh, wedding was very much an afterthought. Um, and we even get more scenes with Caleb outside the wedding than we get with him at the wedding. It's, you know, just strange. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's all good stuff. I, I just, yeah, I, I had a big issue with the, the six o'clock end time, but you're, you're making me come around on it a little bit. Yeah. Caleb's an older guy. Although they all like to party. That's, that's, or at least drink. Um, so I would have thought that that would have been a bigger part of it, but True. So that's okay. That's, okay. So you you haven't you haven't changed my mind on the sailing trip to Tahiti, but you have made me soften on the <laughs> uh, the wedding program. I mean, it would not. I wouldn't advise it as your first wedding as thirty somethings. No. But when it's your like second, it's at least Caleb's second wedding. It's Julie's second wedding, and they're Julie's forty something, and Caleb's sixty something. It's like maybe that's maybe it's chill. Okay. Right on. Don't invite me, though. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, invite me. I'll go to a second wedding after your wedding. Yeah, really. Well, there could have been an after party. I mean, they, they it would have been pretty easy for someone to have uh, arranged an after party. I know Ryan had to hit the road, so he wasn't going to be participating. But If Ryan's not there, is it really a party? <laughs> uh, any any final takes or breaks, my friend? No, that my big ones were, were the wedding and the, the sailing. So I think we got... I think we... We broke those down to uh, a fine mesh <laughs> pace. <laughs> I still, I honestly, I can't. My, I'm so far from understanding the plausibility of the Tahiti plotline that, like, he doesn't bring a single damn supply. It's just open Pacific Ocean between him and dude, and he's like Polynesian islands. You can catch fish right off the side of the boat and cook them right there. So, like, there's fire involved with this too. Maybe it's a hot plate, okay, but still, like, that's that's not adding <laughs> like safety. There's no. <laughs> What about some granola bars, my man? Like, what? <laughs> oh no. Okay, Steve, we're gonna mess up the formula just a little bit. We're gonna mess it up. We're gonna mix it up. You know, it's our show. We can do as we please. We're gonna go into soundtrack next. A segment that has its own rewatch reaction of sorts, more absent than I imagined this season, but we do have a resurgence right here at the end. Some interesting music this time around, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah. Look, quick note on that. I definitely, we'll we'll definitely talk more about this. This is not listener. This is not our final episode for season one of Takes of Our Lives. We are going to do a wrap up episode, so we'll get into much more of all of this. But yeah, a little meta note. Definitely thought soundtrack is going to be more involved. Um, I would say it wasn't. I don't know. What do you think? We did it like quarter of the time, less than that, twenty percent. Yeah, I would say maybe like one every six episodes. Yeah, probably that I would have guessed it would probably be one in three, but um, nevertheless, here we are. Uh, I think I think it it fits well, and this we we kind of wanted to. We, maybe you could say we we wedged it in, but I wanted to do it at least one more time before the end of the season. So, and I think this episode um, gave us some good stuff to talk about. Totally agree. Uh, a couple of there's some there's some callbacks happening. There's some meta music choices that are occurring. Jem uh, gets a song right away <laughs> that she actually recorded. This is her her actual song called "Flying High," which happens when Marissa and Ryan are talking about making it work despite Ryan being assumed. Which we didn't bring this up yet, but you know everyone sort of just assumes that the one time that Ryan and Teresa had sex, he's the father. 
Meanwhile, Eddie and her have been having sex for years. And that's a great, it's like great point. I mean, obviously, because it's a TV show and like the there's not going to be a ton. If, if somebody brought that up, they'd be like, yeah, the odds are that you're not the father. So why don't you chill? Uh, it kind of takes the it takes the air out of all the drama they're trying to build up. But yeah, I didn't yeah. really think about that. Yeah, the chances are very, very low that Ryan would be the father. I got hit with a little bit of uh, ovulation education from my partner while this was happening. Okay. About just how unlikely that they would both have had to have sex with her apparently within like a 48 to 72 hour period and it's it's just unlikely given that she the timeline has not really been considered and the many clinicians that interview her throughout the episode could probably helped her pinpoint uh, who the actual father was but as you said very plot inconvenient to address that i mean we can't even figure out if she's a caterer or a coffee shop worker <laughs> we sure as hell cannot parse who the father is. Um, but none of this has anything to do with Jem, who gets flying high <laughs> as one of the first songs played in this episode, full of good music. Shouts to Jem. Yeah. So remind me, do you know when this song plays? Yes. It is at school, at um, before class starts, when Ryan and Marissa are talking about how they're going to make it work, even though Ryan's going to be the father of Teresa's baby. Okay, so Jem gets an original there, and then she does a McCartney cover live later on. Second, so yeah, correct. Shouts to Jem uh, for being the second live performer after Rooney. Uh, Doesn't quite get her own episode in the same way Rooney did. And no, I don't know if anyone's referring to the finale as the Jem episode, but (laughs) (laughs) whatever the case is, good for her. That's a good one for your pub trivia team. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, who was the second live performer on the OC? Or is that is that even right? Am I missing? Are we missing anybody? Not that I know of, but you know, it's entirely possible. I mean, we could go through. We could we could comb the the archives, but let's just say she's I don't the think second. we have to. Yeah, she deserves she deserves this. She does do an excellent live cover of "Maybe I'm Amazed" by Paul McCartney, which is the first dance of the Cooper Nickel wedding. Uh, we get two. Uh, twice dropped in throughout the episode, the sea and the rhythm. Uh, these are boat scenes or beach scenes. Uh, the most notable of which is Ryan, Marissa, Seth, and Summer walking along the beach where they have that reminiscing moment about how Luke beat up the two boys on the second episode, first episode, I forget. They sort of take a, a little mini stroll down memory lane while this sort of sparse and delicate song is playing. Yeah, what did you think about that scene more generally? I liked that a scene like it was included. Mm. They did a couple of them, a couple little retrospectives, which I did enjoy. I think um, it suffers from the same thing that a lot of scenes in this episode do. Uh, not all of them, but but a good number. They just sort of maybe 80%ed it instead of going all in. Mm-hmm. Not uh, memorable. That's my that's my big take on that scene. Yeah. Great. Yeah, I think it's totally... it. it I like that they included it, but could have could have done something to make it a little more memorable. It was almost there. It had the it had some good components. It just didn't pay off. So now, should we? We're gonna we're gonna workshop this live, listeners, because the final track is an important one. Talk about that in a second, but it also parlays into my O scene. Oh, interesting. Almost, almost exactly. Let's do it then. Yeah, because that's well. Obviously, it's the last song. It's the last scene of the season. It's the last song that plays. Um, yeah, let's let's just kind of combine uh, O scene and uh, soundtrack here. 
It took us all season, but our first double segment is live listeners. The finale, the finale to the finale, the montage that takes us out of season one. Steve, talk about this music that's playing. It's a reprisal. It is. Yep. So we get, I think I called this way back when. So the remind me if I'm, if I'm incorrect, I'm pretty sure it's uh, Model Home. They play Jeff Buckley, Hallelujah, uh, as Marissa Marissa goes to see Ryan when he's in the model home. She leaves. That's a bingo. Runs episode after two. Her. Yep. Um, episode three, right? Because or no, two, two. Yeah, you're right. Uh, anyway, whatever the case is. So yeah, song plays again. I think back when we first that was our second episode of the podcast. I said I was going to do some research about what that song is actually about. Did not do any research, uh, but. <laughs> I think the I think it doesn't really you know and I I don't really even care because I think that you I'm sure there's been shitloads of scholarship on that song because it's a super popular song and it's just just I think I said this also back then that just the lyrics sound like they're important and they sound like they're meant to be interpreted in any various ways and I'm sure there is a lot of interpretation on what those lyrics mean. I think just for back when they use it in episode two and when they use it here, it just. It fits extremely well to it hits the tone kind of perfectly and which is definitely sad but not dour you know what i mean it is kind of, it's still it ha, it's like imbued with some energy it has a um at risk of sounding too trite it has a beautiful quality to it that makes it palatable despite being sad uh i think it really this like frozen in amber like perpetually summer Orange County vibe to have this very autumnal hymn playing. It was it 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 worked in all the ways you needed it to work and all the ways you wanted it to work, while being accompanied by some really top notch uh, nonverbal acting. Oh, dude! Shout out to Kelly Rowan. Her face when like she's crying in the pool house and Sandy like comes to comfort her. That that was like the emotional hammer because we get Barton, you know, she's on the balcony. It's like she's she's like super sad, but she yet she's still she's like in like a setting and in like a situation that I think like like a lot of people aspire to be in, you know, like that you there are so many people of that age, especially that would absolutely kill to be in her shoes. And yet she's still sad and she's turning back to alcohol, which like has been kind of a a bug for her this entire season um some episodes more than others but that that is really interesting and then well we get and then the the great parallels from the first episode where ryan heads back to chino and you know he pulls out of the driveway like looks back at marissa as the i think in the first episode is luke who's coming to come pick her up but this time it's that limo come and take her to the house so i really liked that too but uh yeah, just great stuff all along. Kind of missed summer. Could have could have used a summer shot in there. Like I said, you know, maybe her finding the letter or doing something. But it's just so it's it strikes me as wishy washy. They bring her in in such a powerful way in the third act of the first season, and then in the last two or so episodes, she becomes very relegated. I don't, I don't get it. I, don't I would. Get it I mean, all. I think I thought she had some good some good stuff in the previous episode, but yeah, this episode definitely relegated. And of course, my favorite part about the ending montage, logistical concerns for his safety and well-being aside, uh, Seth's setting sail, the two letters placed on his nightstand, the early morning shove off, the absolutely 
golden orange aura over the sea as he sails away, presumably a stunt double sails off into the sunset. It it was just the scope of it. The scope of it was really captivating. Yeah, totally. That that's a good point. It is like a pretty it's very grand. What did you think about generally the I mean, we've talked about the song now twice and how well it fits. What did you think about them using it again? It made a lot of sense thematically. The episode has this sort of motif of uh the cyclical nature of their the year that was their life. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's uh, the end of summer when first Ryan arrives, but now it's like the beginning of summer a year later and, you know, how much has changed reflections looking back and now the piece of music that sort of puts a bow and strings the past to the present to the future is, um, you know, it, it may be, I wouldn't go so far as to call it expected, but it was... It, it made a ton of sense, and I wasn't surprised at all to see him do it. I was remembering how I felt about that, watching it either for the first time or early earlier on, um, and thinking that they totally nailed it with this song. I was I was not as familiar with that song back then, and I was kind of like, this is just a great song as well. I was looking for on YouTube. I couldn't find anything, but I wanted to see where else Hallelujah has been used in popular culture. Can you think of anything off the top of your head? Because I couldn't, but I was like, this... Now, maybe it's just from listening to The Current too much, uh, but I I wonder if somebody watching it, somebody who's at least, you know, like more or less our age, familiar enough with the song, how they would feel about it, if they would kind of do an eye roll. Because it is a little obvious. I, I, I'm thinking of this now, that it might be a little bit of an obvious choice, uh, and that song doesn't have, doesn't pack the same punch as it would have for someone like a high school age person watching this back in 2004 who probably maybe hasn't hadn't heard that song before. So the only one that leaps to mind though, I'm, I'm positive deep in my bones that it's been used more often than this. Uh, the 2007 Watchmen movie, uh, there is a love scene between, uh, the owl and, um, the female lead of that movie, whose superhero name I forget. Uh, and it goes on for a very long time. And me and my date at the time were remarked about it frequently after. About They they play almost the entire song. Very, okay. Is, do you know, is it the same version? Is it the Jeff Buckley one? No, I believe it's the Rufus Wainwright version. Okay. That's interesting. So I I do, I think it's the Silk Spectre that... Uh, that ah thank you but i'm pretty er, i've never seen the Zack snyder watchman movie i'm a huge fan of the alan moore graphic novel as we talked about in a previous episode and the uh, hbo show that came out this year i also thought was dope but um never saw the movie so that's interesting to hear that that plays in during the movie but i don't well, know I so recommend it it's excellent what do you think about so do you what do you think about my take that it might be someone watching this for the first time now might think that that song is a little trite to be played I think, um, you know, at risk of congratulating you or I, which I try to avoid doing at all costs, uh, we might be a little too media savvy. I think the average person watching it is not going to have the thought, wow, this, the song Hallelujah is oft used in this type of moment. I think they're going to be much more likely to say, to, to have a gut reaction of whether the song, which is, you know, acknowledgingly beautiful, fits or doesn't fit. I I don't think that it is quite so permeable to be overused to the general public. 
Of course, this predilects my my take is predicated on the fact that you and I are some sort of knowledgeable media insider. So <laughs> perhaps it's like an extremely cursed and tainted take from the beginning. But that's where I'm. That's where I'm landing. Well, you're not. Yeah, this. It's not like that. You're you're strong. It's not like you're really digging your heels in here. I I think I I could see it either way. Honestly, I don't I don't have like a strong opinion one way or the other. I. Maybe I'm just looking at it through my own perspective that if if I see if someone plays Hallelujah now in like a prestige TV show, like a prestige drama, I'm I'm not thinking, wow, great choice. I'm thinking it's been done. But maybe that's because of the OC. That's fair, though. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it is. And you know what? What a better time to talk about its place, its deserved place in the pop culture zeitgeist than in its final episode. And we'll do a lot of this next episode, but a quick nod. It, they did set a lot of benchmarks. So that's Euro scene, correct? Yes. I think that's the best scene of the episode. I had a feeling we were going to talk about it, so I, I went with a different one. Um, I did the Ryan and Seth goodbye. Ooh. It, uh, I mean, amazing acting from Brody. Dude, very convincing scene, considering it is two teenage dudes. Uh, just not well equipped to handle these emotions. These characters can just all the kids in the show can often feel like way older or more mature or just like more emotionally intelligent than someone their age should be. Uh, but this fe- this scene feels like what would actually happen in this circumstance. It's brutally so. It's pretty reserved and it kind of feels like both of them are holding back how they actually feel. Seth especially. Ryan, who is obviously the one who's less likely to be sentimental, tries to do something sentimental by giving him the map. And the way Brody just totally stonewalls him, and he's like, map of Tahiti, cool, man. That line delivery is actually kind of gutting, in my opinion. It was, ah, uh, I was like nauseous. It was so <laughs> good. The The line cased in the just Ryan's continuously sort of ham-fisted efforts to express that this is a sad moment and expecting Seth to meet him halfway and then Seth not meeting him even a quarter of the way, even at all. Yeah, doesn't get off the bed, put, just puts his headphones back in. It's really reminiscent to the scene from the pilot when they say goodbye. I rewatched that, actually, for this. Um, the lines are very similar. Seth is way more sentimental. Uh, Ryan like goes for a handshake goodbye. Seth hugs him. Seth suggests that he will come visit Ryan and Chino here like Ryan and you know, he's like you can come visit me and he ba- you know he just kind of brushes it off and then he gives him the map and there's that great like slap improv moment and so yeah just a lot of parallels there but this one this this one's actually I think much better and uh yeah like you said much better acted and pretty like kind of devastating for as far as teenage boys emotionally can can go couldn't agree more I think understated acting is not the show's strong suit generally there are some really well acted moments peter gallagher and kelly rowan leap to the front of my mind uh but they don't even their moments of good acting are usually either trumpeting convictions or sobbing or having like a resolute moment of support for their children not a ton of stuff that i would consider sort of downbeat or played contrary to expectations whereas this scene was all of that and it was perhaps in the top it's in the conversation for the like best acted scenes i think of the first season so um i I have nothing but glowing reviews as you can tell 
so I wanted to just give a special shout also to that scene. You, uh, one, I was kind of debating between the one I just talked about and uh, the Jimmy Julie Haley scene. I ended up going the, the 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 Ryan and Seth one was just too good. So, but you you talked about it, funnest scene in the episode in my opinion. You you thought they may have gone a little too far with some of those insults, but some of those the exchanges were great. Um, shameless gold digger or he's like i think the the clinical whatever like this description of what you're doing is shameless gold digging make you what go Ouch. back to your life as a stripper or coke whore has someone forgotten about the <laughs> 80s God. that's just yeah just excellent excellent shit there um so yeah just special shout to that one because that that one like i thought was that was like yes this is this is what i come to the show for especially in the midst of all like the the abortion stuff with Teresa. so good good scenes Steve, it's our it's our final one episode breakdown of a tier list. But before we do that, we have a bit of a formality. Mm. Was this a foundational episode or a filler episode, Steve? Definitely foundational. Final montage is one of the best moments in the history of the show. Obviously, I mean, just I don't think you can do a a twenty seven episode season of a show and say that the finale is not foundational. So, pretty easy one there. Agreed. Slam dunk. Slam dunk foundational. Uh, and a great episode, besides. Tier lists. Before I get into mine, I want to do a little quick honorable mensch. Okay. Honorable mention to Caleb Nickel. Uh, he's not on screen enough, really. He's, he sort of plays it straight. But I, I did love this line, and I, I want to get your take on it. I don't believe in irony. Mm. Okay. Now... You can, like, I don't believe in bad luck. Okay, that makes sense. You think everything happens because of, you know, predictable causes. I don't believe in astrology, maybe. How do you not believe in irony? So that, uh, it's a great question. It, it's it's like a rhetorical device, right? It's, yeah. it's like a literary <laughs> technique. It's like... Yes, yes. I don't believe in metaphors. Yeah. Well, Caleb... They don't require you to believe in them. Right. <laughs> Irony just, it's like, uh, I mean, maybe he was talking about it in the Al- Alanis Morissette definition of irony, which is just misfortune, but I don't know. Yeah, that- I get, so I'm, I'm looking at some definitions here. I think because that's the other thing. It's really hard to de- define irony. I mean, there's obviously you could pick up a dictionary, but... If you're asked to describe what's ironic, I have like I have a go-to description of what how I describe irony, and bear with me here. Actually, no, I want to get your opinion on this. So, one time when I was I was studying abroad in Italy, and I I ate a lot of uh, like pizza because I was I didn't have a ton of money, and I didn't have I would didn't really know how to cook for myself. So one time I I bought like a personal sized pizza. I brought it back up to my room. I, my desk was full of shit. So I had to set it on the ground, which is not the most sanitary thing in the world, but <laughs> but, but I did it. So I love the the story is very meandering already. I love. I it. was in college. Just stick with me here. So I had the I had the lid open for some reason, and I had a t shirt hanging off the back of my chair, and I was like, I better toss this t shirt somewhere else because if it falls, it's gonna fall right in the pizza. And in the process of trying to move it away from the pizza, I dropped it into the pizza. <laughs> so in the, doing so like you know in, in the action taking an action to avoid an outcome you end up causing the outcome so that's that's an example of irony i was like that and it stuck in my head i was like how ironic like this is 
this is like a great, I can't wait to tell this story again. And I've told it many times. So, um, but that's, that's like one, you know, I don't exactly know the best way to describe that other than just like, it's kind of like the opposite of what you intended on happening. Yeah. It's further complicated because you can, you can torture the definition into doing things intentionally, ironically, like, um, you know, why am I drinking out of a mason jar right now? It's not actually irony, but there was a period in our culture where people were were and are doing things like going to monster truck rallies, even though you're a highly gentrified millennial who does not have monster truck rallies as part of your uh, cultural past. Right. And you're, you're talking you about like it. wearing or doing something ironically. Correct. But that that is like kind of that's very different from what I was describing. But right, it's but not you're, you're you're describing irony as it exists in the dictionary. But I think the fundamental principles are the same. And you know th- this isn't like a uh, this week on words podcast, so uh, <laughs> we probably won't solve it. But like the the people who do something ironically are having the opposite of the normally intended outcome for them. They're doing something that they wouldn't find fun. And then they are doing it to have fun. Interesting. I guess is how I... That, I no, that's I, that, that's a good explanation of that. But yeah, so getting back to the OC, though. Yeah, Caleb saying, I don't believe in irony. Uh, doesn't quite track. But like, I, like I, I it's think... It's not really possible. No. But I think that there's a, there's a scene in the, the show at some point where Summer says, until Cohen came along and taught us all irony. Like, do you remember <laughs> that? And she's like, jackass. That was really funny. But I would say it's more of sarcasm, what he's what he is known for. So is there is there like a is she connecting a line between irony and sarcasm? Does she not understand what irony is? Do I not understand it? Though these are all questions. No, I think are... honestly we had a a shared cultural psychosis during the early two thousands where we just conflated irony and sarcasm. Mm-hmm. We just we just called them the same things, and now they're the terms are intermingled forever. Yeah. Oh. I wanted to give a special shout out for Caleb. He had one of my favorite lines of the episode where he's like, or Sandy goes up to him and he he goes, it's that same scene. And he says, I talked to the DA. It's over. And he's like, Otis, what did that pant load have to say for himself? <laughs> Dude, pant load is such a mean thing. To yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Caleb, but he didn't make my list. I have what you might call an overly sentimental cowards tier list oh i don't i i'm i'm all sentiments in this uh this finale i i gave in my my line at the top of the show was picked for sentimental reasons i've got some sentimental picks on here but let's hear it let's get it started who's your five my five's marissa okay i had ryan i think that i could have had marissa there as well what why'd you pick marissa honestly the bartometer this week pretty down the middle yeah she was not she was not hard to watch she was not a revelation but this is this is very much a lifetime achievement award five uh very workwoman like episode she cried she had that really nice tender dance with ryan at the end where she's like i understand why you have to do this i just wish you didn't have to mm-hmm. i love you and she was crying and they were dancing it was you know that was nice and in she she's got the like noble prisoner as she capitulates to julie's plans she acts like the adults and breaks up the wwe wrestling match of words that is going on in the foyer of the new mansion Mm -hmm. um 
I mean, can we start by saying, like, you couldn't hire a mover to, like, get bedroom <laughs> in there? You guys have more money than God. Um, I don't know. Overall, you know, five is where you put someone who you liked that they were in the episode, but they maybe didn't, like, steal the show. And I, I definitely think that's the case with Marissa here. Yeah, you're totally right. And she, that, that scene with her and Seth in the diner is really good. Um, oh, yeah. I like that a lot. I picked Ryan. It was, really doesn't really have a ton of standout scenes. I would say the best one is him and Seth, uh, and he's not the one who makes that as great as it is. Um, I just mostly picked him for, you know, he he's on screen probably the most. He goes through a pretty significant emotional roller coaster, ultimately, I guess, does the right thing. What's your take on that quickly? Do you think he did? I mean, is he he's doing obviously he's doing the right thing, but like he's doing could, something very consistent with his profile. It's yeah. the honorable thing. Um, it's the martyr thing to do. I mean, I don't think any reasonable person would expect anything, especially because he sets himself up for it at the beginning, saying, I'm going to support her and be there for her. But, you know, I'm. it's not like I'm going to change my entire life. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, yeah. I, when he said that, I'm like, wow, what a level-headed take on the matter. Also, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if this is in poor taste, but, hey, maybe, uh, maybe get that paternity test before you like uproot your entire life i don't know yep i don't think that's in poor taste i think it's just running contrary to sitcom logic uh, <laughs> i have him at four though for the ref for reference so oh. i'm gonna piggyback off of this yeah. and say i think when he was talking about you know he just had a very uh, again the thing i liked about the kids performance this episode that was kind of rare he was very like expectable when they were like how are you feeling relieved sad confused he's like all of the above you know how do you it's a lot of information to process he doesn't take any moral stances he doesn't like get affronted that she is or isn't keeping the child she lets it be he lets it be her choice mm-hmm. and um i don't know i i thought he he made a good account of himself both the character ryan and both ben mckenzie's portrayal of him yeah, I could have. I agree. I could have used a little more uh, with the scene with Sandy in the pool house from him. And yeah, but you know that's that's par for the course for Mackenzie and that character. So uh, I had him at five. You had him at four. I had Jimmy at four. Uh, just James. Mo- yeah, he just love him. You know, he was in my four last week. Killer scene, dropping off Marissa, getting the fight with you. Very reminiscent that fight with uh, the, from like those uh, the Thanksgiving episode. Except you're kind of substituting Haley for Rachel. Uh, they're kind of going back and forth when Jimmy. Much like the show did. Jimmy's <laughs> well done. Uh, so yeah, I had Jimmy at four. Did he make yours? He didn't. He didn't. Okay. He just. He was only in a couple scenes. Yeah, and, he's very. You know, right. if you would have asked me at the beginning which one of us would have lined up as a Tate Donovan stand, I would have said me, <laughs> guilty, Your Honor, throw me in jail, lock away the key. Uh, but that's not what happened. You you've consistently landed on Donovan's side on these tier lists. I have. I don't know if he ever reached four, three or higher for me, but um, he's he's probably my my strongest mainstay. Um, in he's he's batting lead off for me that's right never he's got a great obs totally so that's four who'd you have at three kirsten's my three okay she has some truly incredible scenes uh, we've already talked about it a lot at length but the 
various conversations, first the support to drive her to her appointment, then the talking her through the logistics, then giving her own experience as a young woman who had an abortion. Ultimately, you know, you can arm wrestle over this one, but kind of sort of talks her out of it. But then even sort of rebuking Sandy, she does have some logistical moral ground to stand on when she's like, hey, I didn't talk her out of it. I just told her that she wasn't compelled to do any one thing. Uh, You know, you might be, that might be sort of playing fast and loose with semantics, but uh, all in all, without belaboring any other specific point, um, she was just extremely convincing. And she brings like an earnestness and performance that very few characters on the show have. And, you know, the tears tears always feel real uh, when she cries them, so... I had Seth at three. I have a feeling he's your two or one, probably one. I'm going with uh, Seth at three. I think it's the entire Seth experience. Big, he's got, you know, humorous, big swings, some big misses. Um, The petulance is turned all the way up at times. He's funny. Two two 11 for sure. (laughs) He's funny. He's sad. He's self-deprecating. He's whiny. Uh, all in this episode, and he's you know he, he's generous. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's also he can't bring himself to like say a proper goodbye to his friend that he doesn't want to leave because he's too upset. Um, so yeah, I had him at three. Yeah, no spoilers, but he shows up a little later in okay. my list. Uh, who's your two? I had Kirsten at two. You said it all. I thought in some ways, you know, for as much time as they devoted to the the Teresa plot, she's kind of the MVP of that plot for me, uh, being there for Teresa. And we get the, you know, the kind of lore drop about, you know, a little bit into her past with the abortion issue. Um, but yeah, I think she... For me, it's what drives that montage home is her her face when she's crying about Ryan leaving, and because that's that's the best, that's the most emotional thing that happens, like the most emotional thing on screen that happens uh, in that montage. So she's kind of the it's just a, the full especially good because she has that you know she originally wasn't so sure about even bringing him into the home. Yeah, you know? it's like she lost a son. Good point. So I had her that at too. Beautiful. Uh, my number two, he is a legend in his own right. He is a bit of a father figure to us all, at least to me. Uh, no disrespect <laughs> meant to my own father, who is incredible. Uh, it's Sandy Cohen. He um, he takes a little bit of a backseat this episode. He's got a few good moments, mostly being wholesome, supportive guy. Uh, a little bit of the worst apology of all time. He basically marches into Caleb's office and says, my wife is making me come here and I'm not even apologizing. Why? You're taking a page out of Caleb's book, showing up and not (laughs) doing the thing you're supposed to do. Uh, But I will allow you to take the floor to heap some praise onto him because it's well-deserved. Thank you. He is my number one. Uh, Just a wonderful season from him. I think he was at the top of my tier list all but one episode. The uh, infamous Anna at one, Anna, Anna <laughs> breaking down the door in her first episode. Uh, finale was honestly maybe the top two to three weakest episodes for him, but the momentum was just too strong. It was the boulder from Temple of Doom. There was no stopping it. He, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll save my like larger Gallagher thoughts for our wrap up. Um, we talked about how this tier list functions um, pretty frequently, but. 
if we're doing it with, you know, if you're taking into account the the bulk of the work, the sum total of everything, uh, I just couldn't take them off for the finale, even though I, I got to admit there wasn't a ton of memorable stuff um, from him in this episode. But yeah, the momentum was there and no one was going to stop it. I've got no arguments. I mean, you've you've played a extremely shrewd and honorable game with Gallagher's rating <laughs> throughout this uh, first season of our show. Uh, you, you've you been very adherent to the principles of momentum. I cannot uh, argue with his inertia. It is immense. Uh, on my tier list, it's been a little more even-keeled between him and his son. Uh, I think they've exchanged being the lead performer uh, in, the sec- in, in the last third of the season, and that's why I have Seth this week at number one. Um, I will not begrudge you for that either. I think you're totally right. I think that Seth... This is uh, subjective as well. This, these t- this tier list, so it, your mileage, my mileage varies a little bit. Uh, is less with Seth than I think yours is, but I will not argue that he definitely like took the driver's seat um, in the last third of the season. Uh, his his character. So tell me what you liked about him in this episode. Everything everything you said and more. He it was the top to bottom Adam Brody masterclass. He was a little bit of everything. Putting Gaff did put a little bit of a blemish on an otherwise excellent episode. That's part of the Brody experience, though, too. He's he doesn't he's not batting a thousand. <laughs> That's right. You can't hit home runs if you don't take big swings. <laughs> I'm a little confounded by his treatment of Summer. It's he's a little hot and cold with her. He like is professing his love, and then she's like trying to to console him but he's completely unreachable but then he has the throwaway that this the boat was named after her all along didn't really i wasn't really tracking 100 percent his thought process there but the lash outs the attempts at reconciliation and the fact that he is the last thing we see going into season two is just it all puts the bow on it for me a truly unique type of character and a truly unique impact on this episode and the season altogether Absolutely. I agree with with what you said there. He's one of he is like the one of a kind thing from this TV show. So I think it's fitting that you had him at one. Well, next week our tier list will be a little different, Steve. We'll be reacting to the data. We'll see who stacked up how on the all time season one rankings with point assignments and everything. And then maybe we'll go back and, and talk about how that maybe interfaces well or doesn't interface well with how we feel emotionally. But that is a conversation best saved for our finale. As for the finale, season two cliffhangers, what are you looking forward to in six years when we do season two of this show? I've got a little bit of a meta cliffhanger. Um, What's next for the takes of our lives, gang? Uh, We we, know we teased it last episode, but my question is, will any piece of media live up to season one of the OC? Will we do the much-discussed Frasier pod? Questions like, will a Zach Braff pod, or a Zach Braff-devoted season be a death nail to our podcast or a springboard? (laughs) My man is dating Florence Pugh, uh, and there is like a Julie Caleb-sized age gap between them. I don't know if you're aware of this, but... I'm not, but all my most up-to-date Braff lore comes straight from your source. So, I'm... I'm going to say that'll probably uh, get us canceled. In the uh, culture. <laughs> both in terms of ratings yeah. and and cancel culture will probably catch up to us. Um, 
but I'm I couldn't be more excited for it. Um, I'm excited to uh, explain to my family in Europe why I'm reading the Bridget Jones book. Uh, if they ask, um, I'm excited for all of the things that'll come along with uh, pushing this live in just a couple weeks. And you know, I'm also excited for the for our own finale. I think uh, this has been a, a truly enjoyable and refreshing and fascinating and fun experience for me. So uh, one more, one more victory lap next week. Me too, Can't man. Wait. It's been a pleasure. I'm looking forward to uh, wrapping it up. It's season one. Oh yeah. You're not going to get off that easy. <laughs> we still have to at least talk about Bridget Jones. Um, well, listeners, I hope you've enjoyed the ride so far as much as we have. Join us next week for our thoughts about the season one of the OC altogether, what it means in the cultural zeitgeist, and what we thought of season one in comparison to its other seasons. But until then, take it till you make it.